This is Cut to the Chase. I'm Dave Emanuel. I'm talking with Public Service Commissioner Tim Eccles. Uh, Tim is Vice Chair of the Georgia Public Service Commission, and he was recently appointed as Vice Chair of a National Committee on uh, Nuclear Waste Disposal. So we're going to cover a variety of, of topics, and I'm going to let Tim start it off with his new involvement uh, in nuclear waste. First, he's going to give you a little bit of background on the Georgia Public Service Commission. Well, the commission was uh, formed in 1879 as the Railroad Commission. So folks that maybe don't know that much about the Georgia PSC, uh, just think about monopolies, people that have a monopoly in a right-of-way. First, it was trains, and then telegraph, gas, telephone, uh, electric wire. So all those things that are in the right-of-way, we have something to do with. Uh, It's in our jurisdiction. Even today, we do all the fines for any pipeline strike. If you're out digging and you hit you hit a, a cable wire or an electric wire or a gas line, you're going to appear before our commission and be uh, and be fined probably because of uh, the great uh, potential loss of life that we have from hitting a gas line. So the commission's uh, very engaged in a lot of different things from regulating telephone rates uh, for small telephone companies to uh, setting Georgia Power's return on equity to approving uh, whether or not we move forward with a nuclear reactor or not. Now, one of the issues with nuclear energy is that you're left with radioactive waste. And for a number of years, there's been laws on the books where you can't do anything with that besides store it. And that's stored in Yucca Mountain Storage Facility. Recently, I think people are re-examining the possibility of recycling that waste and getting more energy out of what's left after the nuclear material is no longer suitable for power generation. Can you tell us how that's moving? Why are we looking at storing it now as opposed to recycling it because there's energy left? Sure. Let's be clear that even though Yucca Mountain has had a tunnel drilled through it and there's some wiring there, it is not yet storing any waste. It, uh, there's been quite a bit of money spent on the site, and I do believe that uh, Secretary Rick Perry and Donald Trump will... Uh, restart the process still has some some uh, bureaucratic approvals to go through uh, but meanwhile the waste uh, is sitting uh, at plant sites so in Georgia we have four reactors at two sites uh, one around Baxley Georgia down just uh, kind of in the middle of the state and then one over on the Savannah River in Waynesboro plant Vogel which most people recognize that name but Virtually all the waste that those plants have generated is still sitting there. So for Plant Vogel, that's since 1987. So we filled up all the pools. Remember, nuclear waste is radioactive, and it must be kept underwater in order for it to be safe. So we filled up all of those pools, and now we've moved part of that that material into big cement cask that you know might be the size of. Uh, you know, a, a gymnasium. Uh, these are these are large, and we're waiting really for the federal government to find a final resting place for the material. But it's my hope that instead of just shipping that material that still still has a lot of energy resident in it, why don't we do what the French do? Let's reprocess it, remove ninety six percent of the material, and then we just put the four percent in the final resting place. And what that does is it 
it extends the life of a Yucca Mountain. Because if we don't do something like this, we're going to need nine Yucca Mountains by the end of the century. And if you've been keeping up with politics in the U.S., you know that we can't even get one completed, let alone nine. So I think for the industry, the nuclear power industry, to be sustainable, you absolutely must reprocess the material. What seems to be the pushback on reprocessing? We we reprocess plastic, a whole range of products that we recycle and reprocess and get material out of to use in a different setting and a different for a different purpose. Why is there resistance to reprocessing nuclear waste? There's really pushback on both the left and the right. So for my Republican colleagues, they're concerned about the cost because it is expensive to do. But when you're talking about something that has a half-life of 10,000 years, right, uh, then you are going to have to make an investment. So to build a, a substantial reprocessing facility in in just one part of the U.S., and we would really need four of these, it would be about $20 billion, and that's, that's quite a lot of money. From the left, um, my Democratic friends and, and environmental friends are concerned about nuclear proliferation because you do get some plutonium out of this reprocessing uh, and I think their concern is we're going to make more nuclear weapons, and many of these folks are uh, anti-nuclear weapons, and they don't they don't want anything that might move that along. So, frankly, we've got we've got a lot of pushback from the left and the right. But what I say to my left-leaning friends is, look, this is carbon-free energy, and it's worth when you generate electricity through uranium or through reprocessed material. It is carbon-free in its emissions. That means no CO2. And you hear, you hear news all the time about folks that are against more greenhouse gases, more CO2. So I, I, you can't have it both ways. You can't want less CO2 and be against nuclear power because we must have this baseload 24-7 energy to be able to offset intermittent energy like wind and solar that only work if the wind is blowing and the sun is shining. Uh, <clears throat> there's a, a good point there, and that, that's always been an issue that I see is that you can't be against everything, and you can't, or you can't be against everything that isn't wind or solar when wind and solar are, in fact, intermittent. Do you see, uh, do you see this moving along in terms of people I would have to say coming to their senses and seeing perhaps nuclear isn't the only form of energy we look at, but it's certainly a viable form. It is available, it's efficient, and we have to make use of it either until something better comes along or in addition to whatever other generating positions we take. I think we're at a real crossroads in the U.S. right now. Westinghouse has uh, filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. They're the ones who are building our new reactors and the new reactors in South Carolina. This has put Georgia and South Carolina in a very difficult financial position because the utilities, while they would like to finish these reactors, even if they have, a have to find another contractor and spend double the amount of money that they've already been allotted for this, I think the elected commissioners in Georgia and the commissioners that are appointed by the South Carolina legislature 
I think they're hesitant to move this project from a fixed and firm contract that we have to kind of a time and material type of experience, which is where we are at today in Waynesboro, Georgia. Georgia Power is paying out of their pocket uh, to keep the project alive, to keep the talent there, uh, because they have a lot of engineers. They, had a lot, they have a lot of craft labor, and they don't want those folks to go back home. And many of these people live in other parts of the United States. Uh, so if President Trump and Rick Perry don't step in in some way, and that could be pressuring the Japanese government not to let Toshiba go under. Toshiba's the parent company of Westinghouse. They are the ones who have financially guaranteed this work. We have a parental guarantee from them, but if they go bankrupt, we lose that. And where would Georgia Power look for the money? To the ratepayers, and it's the commissioners who are the gatekeepers. We're the ones who say whether or not the ratepayers have to pay the extra money. And frankly, I'm concerned that our ratepayers be the folks that have to pay the learning curve for these reactors. I mean, doesn't it make sense that a Westinghouse and a Toshiba who own who own the intellectual property doesn't it make sense that that they who are going to sell these things all over the world that they're wanting us to be their poster child in the U.S. They're wanting us to be the guinea pig, but we can't pay that learning curve. They need to pay that. Toshiba needs to make good on this, and so I sure hope that the Trump administration can apply pressure uh, on the Japanese government. Let's let the Japanese government bail out Toshiba, just like the U.S. government bailed out General Motors. Let's let's have Rick Perry um, change the terms on the federal loan guarantee that we have for these reactors. He can do that. Let's have Rick Perry and Donald Trump uh, put pressure on the U.S. Congress to extend the federal production tax credits that are going to expire at the end of 2021 probably before we finish our reactors. And that's worth to Georgia about $500 million. That's a half a billion. So there are a number of things that the Trump administration could do. And it does appear that Rick Perry has changed his tune on this. And he is talking more about helping this this American baseload power of nuclear and coal. And so I I hope that we see some movement uh, from the president. Well, you, you've touched on a very sensitive subject, coal. Now, the previous administration appeared to be doing everything it could to shut down the coal industry. There are obviously grave concerns about the amount of CO2 that is created when you use coal to generate electricity. There is clean coal. Uh, there are many processes to reduce CO2 from the processing of coal. Do you see those avenues that have been explored in terms of keeping coal clean as being effective, or do you think it's you're just putting it somewhere else? Well, I do see the Trump administration relaxing some of the guidelines uh, and deadlines for for coal. And what that's going to do is it's going to allow us to not close some of the coal plants that we have. Now, about coal and clean coal. If you think about the older cars that you might see, the antique cars running around uh, around the highways, 
these older cars didn't have a catalytic converter. They didn't have the, the pollution controls on them. That's like the old coal plants that we had. All of the coal plants that we have currently operating in Georgia have the catalytic converters on that smokestack. So we are capturing 85% of the mercury out of this. We are capturing 90% of the nitrogen oxide and the sulfur dioxide. We're, we're spending a lot of money and using some of the energy from that very plant to capture this toxic material. Now, we're not capturing CO2, but let me remind people to think back to their high school biology class or a botany class that they may have taken in college. What do plants and trees gobble up every day? It is CO2. So CO2 itself is not toxic. Carbon monoxide is toxic. If you leave your car running in your garage and you're sitting in your car, you will die. It is, it is toxic. But carbon dioxide is not toxic. And I think many from the left have said that what industry has done is pushed us over the tipping point. Because remember, volcanoes emit CO2. When you have a raging forest fire, it emits CO2. When, when cows go to the bathroom in the field, they emit CO2. <laughs> and so CO2 is not the devil here. Uh, and we have, I think, allowed the messaging to be shifted on this. And we have made CO2 some kind of demonic substance when the fact of the matter is we have reduced CO2 in the U.S. It's India and China uh, that's really been, uh, and Japan, by the way. Japan shut down all their nuclear reactors after Fukushima, and they relied uh, on fossil fuel for about 90% of their generation. What did that do? It increased CO2. But I think what the left wants to do in the U.S. is handcuff U.S. businesses and U.S. industry, take away the competitive advantage that we have from cheap energy, which in turn will lower the standard of living in the U.S., decrease wealth in the U.S. And when you do that, you wind up hurting the poor. You wind up hurting nonprofit organizations. You wind up hurting green investment. So there's a lot of consequences that come from a harsh policy on CO2 and coal, and I don't think it's worth the little bit that we gain from it. I've always questioned that, and I'm sure you're familiar with the Kyoto Protocols that were agreed to in 1995. The, the U.S. was not a signatory on that agreement, but it was a group of nations that got together and were put, put in effect a policy to reduce CO2 emissions. And yet, in the 11 years since that agreement was signed, CO2 atmospheric levels have increased at twice the rate that they did prior to signing the agreement. Now, at that same time period, we've had an awful lot of deforestation. So the question I have is, how much do you think CO2 levels in the atmosphere have increased because of CO2 generation or the reduction in CO2 absorption? The uh, Greenpeace study of, of 2009 stated that the slash and burn that goes on in the jungles in Brazil creates more carbon dioxide than all of the 
cars, trains, boats, and buses combined. So we have two different issues going on in terms of we have CO2 generation from slash and burn, and then we also have lack of CO2 absorption because of all the jungle that's been destroyed. Do you see any kind of policy coming out that was would address the CO2 absorption issue? I know we have offsetting uh, policies where a company can plant trees, as an example, to offset the carbon dioxide that they generate through their processes. But you can't you can't plant 10 trees and say, well, we're good when you've destroyed literally thousands of acres of trees in South America. Yeah, that's, what, that's right. What you're speaking to is sustainability. So we talked about nuclear sustainability and being able to take that waste and then recycle it back in and use it to keep the process going. In the U.S., particularly in the southeast, our forestry is very sustainable. We harvest the trees. We use it for pulp, paper, diaper fluff, Starbucks cups. Uh, we use it for, for a lot of different things. And then we clear that field and we replant those trees in mass. We thin those, the, those plantation forests. We use that thinning uh, to sometimes generate electricity or make steam, at paper mills or other things. So in the U.S., the forest industry doesn't get the credit that they deserve for sustainability. Where is the left in criticizing this slash and burn policy from these other countries? Uh, we, the the left is is silent, and they, for the most part, and they want to go after U.S. industry and U.S. business. And I, I really think that it's a little bit hypocritical uh, for the left to move in that direction. I mean, you know, before you point too many fingers at me, I mean, you know, I I drove an electric car to this interview. I put solar thermal on my Athens home. You know, I, you know, I've gone on time of use rate and, you know, you know, for for our home and turning off our ACs, you know, in the heat of the, the heat of the day in the summertime in order to conserve. So I, I get annoyed when people come into my office and point their finger at me and lecture me about CO2. And I tell them, look, until you drive an electric car and put solar on your home, don't be lecturing me about this. Mm-hmm. We need to take personal responsibility. And I think, I think CO2 has become politicized, and it is, it, it is a device that, uh, that the left is using to beat over the head of U.S. industry, of, of Congress, of administration, presidential administrations, the Chamber of Commerce, and everyone else to move forward you know, their agenda. And frankly, as a guy with seven children, I, I often see some of these messages mixed, like population control, for example. And I've had people come up to me in a grocery store when I had, my, when I had all my younger kids with me. I'd give my wife a break and I'd take all seven of my kids to the grocery store. I've had people come up and lecture me that I was using too many resources um, and, you know, and put me on some guilt trip about that. And frankly, as you can tell, it annoys me. Uh, it's hypocritical, and you know, ultimately. And I said this to Earth Day audiences: Look, I don't worship the Earth; I worship the God who created the Earth. I, as an evangelical, I believe in being a good steward, but God has given us dominion over this planet, and we should exercise that in a responsible, sustainable, in in a way that would honor and please Him. 
The problem with what you've just said is it doesn't generate any tax revenue. And from what I've seen, the approach taken by governments throughout the world seems to be carbon dioxide is, is a bad guy, and we can use that to make money because we're going to have carbon credits, carbon trading, but every solution, quote-unquote solution, seems to be a tax in some form. Do you see, do you see the, that same situation from your perspective? Yeah, not only is it an overall tax, but in the United States, it's a wealth transfer from southern states to western states. So when a California or other state uh, has, uh, ha- has uh, a lot of credits to trade because they have a lot of solar and a lot of wind and they've spent money there, and you create a policy like the Clean Power Plan, which President Obama created through his EPA, that would require a southern state like Georgia or a state like Montana, full of Powder River Basin coal, to buy those credits to offset all the CO2 that they're emitting. It is a wealth transfer, and it is, a, in my opinion, a diabolical scheme that brings great harm to the citizens in my state, and as a constitutional officer, I'm not going to sit here and stand for it. Well, that makes a lot of sense because it does seem that there are so many of these schemes that are exactly that, wealth transfer and, and again, just tax generation, and ultimately, everybody has to pay for that. If, if I'm a business, if I'm a utility, and my cost of operation goes up, I can't sustain that without raising rates. And that's, you're going to have to come in and evaluate whether or not to approve the rate. But how do you not approve a rate hike when it can be demonstrated that additional money is needed just to stay in business? And if, they go, if the companies go out of business, we have no power. I had a commissioner in Dallas last week when we were meeting with the EPA uh, shared this with some of the, the high-ranking EPA staffers that were with us. This is a commissioner from one of the the western states, he he likened the carbon policy that President Obama was trying to bring about to that of a person who goes out and buys a boat and a lot of scuba diving gear and spends about, say, $7,000 on, uh, on equipment and a boat and a motor and gas and permits in order to dive down to the to bottom of a coral reef and pick up four quarters mm-hmm. uh, and think that they've done a good deed, uh, that the cost that we would have to uh, that we would have to 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 spend in order to do the things that President Obama wanted us to do were astronomical, and that seems to be a lot of of what goes on. It may look good on paper, but I, what I find difficult to justify is you have concern with people at the lower income levels being able to afford a variety of things, including electricity. But they also have to be able to pay for things that electricity creates, which means products. And how do you how do you justify creating an issue for anybody who's building something or creating something that is ultimately going to be bought by people of all economic levels? And when you increase the cost of production, you increase the cost to the end consumer. You know, I deal with a lot of low income and poor people every week. They call my office. They're power's been turned off or about to be turned off. I had a 71-year-old lady call me this week 
that her gas had been turned off for lack of payment. And these customers, for the most part, they don't care about solar. They don't care about wind. They don't care about sustainability. They just are trying to make it to the next power bill and the next paycheck. So I think the best thing that we can do for these customers is to help them make it. And part of that is just providing low uh, utility bills and, and reliable electricity. Yes, I care about the water. Yes, I care about the air. That's, that's important. But I don't want to spend and break the bank in order to get just a tiny bit of progress. Let's do things that really move the needle. And we have been making so much progress in the U.S. in terms of reducing toxicity out of these coal plants. Let's not, let's not uh, have the pendulum swing all the way to the other side where we shut down this industry and we, we drive all this material to India and China and Japan where they're not being as careful as we are. And I, I, think, I think it's counterproductive. And as my colleague Chuck Eaton said, he thinks that if the power, clean power plan came into effect, that we would have a net increase of CO2 worldwide because of all the rest of the world buying our cheap coal, which is project, projected to be the same price for the next 50 years. This is a very cheap, reliable form of power. And by the way, you can pile it up at a power plant. Guess how much natural gas you can pile up at a power plant? <laughs> that natural gas is just in time. And if there's a pipeline accident, we've had two in Alabama this year, and the gas gets cut off to a power plant, you're shut down. You have no way of generating electricity from that plant. And I think that's something that seems to get missed quite a bit, where you have people on a rampage to shut down coal, as an example. And the, the question always comes to mind for me is, we are one of probably six or seven major polluters in the world. How does the U.S. CO2 generation, as an example, compare to, as you mentioned, China, India, Japan, Europe, and any other state that has business going on and manufacturing going on? And if we were to cut our CO2 emissions to zero, we would still have a problem. Yeah, I don't have the chart in front of me. Clearly, China China is the big offender now. If you see photos, uh, you know, on uh, Facebook or, or Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat around the world, you see Chinese people wearing masks. Mm -hmm. uh, they, I see them come in on airplanes uh, at the Atlanta airport wearing those masks, and they are living like this because they've, they've grown really fast. The middle class is clamoring in China for connected devices uh, and, and electricity in their homes uh, and a greater, uh, a, a greater portion of that. And they're running a lot of uncontrolled or unscrubbed coal plants in China. In fact, they're, they're building coal plants uh, and they're building a lot of them. And so, I mean, how can we look at the U.S., at all of these controlled uh, coal plants that we have where we are being environmentally responsible and allow the left to paint all of our coal with the same broad brush that they might be painting coal plants in India and China. It's not the same. And it is disingenuous to 
to compare our coal and our coal usage with that of China. It's disingenuous. But yet, for whatever reason, many on the left, many of my environmental friends are are content to to use this fake news, uh, to use a popular word, uh, or, or false information, or maybe they're not really saying that. They're just conveniently leaving out the fact that we're using scrubbers. And I don't think it's fair to do that just to move your agenda along. Anything else you want to, uh, to add to this conversation in terms of where we're going and what you see for the future? You know, as we enter into a hotter time of the year, folks need to really have their AC units looked at. You can, you can really spend a lot of extra money in the summer and waste a lot of money if you've got an inefficient heat pump or AC. So it is worth uh, spending $75 or $100 to have a technician come out. Georgia Power has a number of rebates available. Uh, and so do other utilities, uh, if you happen to be listening th- to this in other states. Uh, so it is worth taking a look at that and making sure that you keep your power bills under control in the summertime. Okay. Public Service Commissioner Tim Eccles, thank you. A lot of good information, and I think we'll look forward to doing this again in the future. Thank you so much.